Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, we are going to do an update on the Russia and Ukraine economies. So, it has been two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, and the world, and if we, we have to define the world as the United States, Europe, and a few other countries, tried to implement the most monumental, consequential, comprehensive, bombastic, and Godzilla-like sanctions regime ever imposed on one country. Now, I said it that way because while this effort has had an impact, it has clearly not been as great as the words I just used. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, things have actually turned a bit on the negative side for Ukraine as Russia's war effort seems to have picked up some pace. And one of the main opposition leaders in Russia, Alexei Navalny, has been essentially killed while he was serving what clearly looked like a political prison term. So today, the picture is not nearly as good as I think most people were hoping. The Russian economy has been hit, but maybe not hit as hard as some would hope. The Ukrainian economy has been hit very hard. But we wanted to just try to kind of take a step back and look at what has happened. What has happened to Ukraine? What has happened to Russia? And what has happened to the sanctions regime? And to help us do that, I'm joined by two people. My colleague, Urash Uko, who is the head of Emerging Markets Europe Research here at the IIF, and our former colleague and very good friend, Alina Rybakova, who is now the director of the International Affairs Program at the Kiev School of Economics. So let me start with Urash, who just put out a paper on Ukraine's financing needs this week. Let me just do a little bit of a spoiler. They're large. But instead of me just saying that, Urash, can you tell us what has happened to Ukraine's economy over the last couple of years? And what type of financing needs are they really looking at? Yes, of course, Clay. Thank you for having me for this podcast. Obviously, uh, the ongoing war has given a massive damage to the productive capacity of the Ukrainian economy. The war caused and damage to Ukraine's physical infrastructure, energy infrastructure, ports, railways, as well as human capital. Um, just to put the impact of the war into some numbers, we can look at GDP statistics. When uh, Russia invaded Ukraine in early 2022, Ukraine's real GDP fell by 40% in the first half of 2022. And after such a huge decline in output, Last year, 2023, was sort of a recovery year from a very low base. But the pace of output recovery was actually quite impressive. Ukraine's real GDP is estimated to have grown by around 5% in 2023, exceeding consensus expectation of around 2%. That was prevalent during the most of the, the first half of 2023. Despite a strong Growth recovery last year output level still remained nearly 30% below pre-war levels. In our short research note, which we published yesterday, we looked at uh, Ukraine's external 
financing needs for this year. And the way we define our external financing needs is basically the sum of principal payments for Ukraine's external debt and its current account deficit. And we estimate uh, Ukraine's external financing needs at around $24 billion for this year. And we forecast uh, Ukraine's defense spending will continue to rise. And this will widen Ukraine's fiscal and current account deficits this year. Therefore, securing sufficiently large and timely external funding is key for Ukraine's ability to keep fighting against Russia while maintaining economic and financial stability. As you said, Clay, Russia escalated its attacks to Ukraine so far in 2024, which unfortunately clouds the macroeconomic outlook, raising concerns about the Ukrainian authorities' ability to maintain Ukrainian revenue's stability. Effects liquidity shortages could lead to revenue devaluation, which would in turn jeopardize the authorities' impressive achievement to bring down inflation below the 5% target. In the 2024 budget, Ukrainian authorities penciled in $37 billion of external funding to finance the projected fiscal deficit for 2024. But so far, Ukraine has received only around $400 million from Japan. IMF and Ukraine have just reached a staff-level agreement on the third review of the financing program, and as a result, nearly $900 million of funding should be provided to Ukraine gets relatively quickly. The EU approved a 50 billion euro package earlier this month, but still no payment has been made by the EU to Ukraine. And the, as you know, the US financial aid package is still waiting for an approval in the House. So to sum up, timely external bilateral funding will be key for Ukraine to avoid a significant revenue depreciation or rising inflation and financial instability this year. Okay. Thank you, Rush. Now, Alina, I'm going to turn to you. I want to talk to you about Russia, but obviously, look, you work for the Kiev School of Economics. So, Rushke just gave us what I guess would be a slightly dark picture of Ukraine. Do you have any thoughts on that? And then maybe you can pivot toward Russia and kind of what's happening to its economy and how they have responded to the sanctions regime that was put in place two years ago. And it's been updated fairly regularly, including, by the way, today, which we're recording this on February 23rd, and the Biden administration, as well as the European Union, announced some uh, new sanctions just as of today. So maybe you could kind of try to hit both of those issues. Thank you so much. Indeed, the situation in Ukraine is worrisome, mostly because if there is uh, no progress on the package forthcoming from Congress, then we do need to move to Plan B or C. Well, I think surprisingly, Ukrainian economy is resilient enough. So we could try to look into domestic measures to try to raise on the marginal revenues, maybe create broader base in the economy by strengthening export pathways for Ukrainian exports, whether it's metals mining or agricultural exports. We already have seen some success from exports uh, via sea, you know, the, the freeing up some of the ports and ability to export from there. Of course, for that, insurance is needed as well as security guarantees. But ultimately, if the full extent of the support is not forthcoming, uh, the Central Bank of Ukraine will have to gain support 
fiscal spending. So basically, you will go back to the monetization of the deficit, which we have seen in 2022, which in the end led to pressure on the exchange rate and severe hike in the interest rate. Of course, this is a scenario we all want to avoid. And we are definitely hopeful that the package will come through from the US, but also that European Union, which there is progress, it's under consideration now, will be able to provide the necessary funding alongside the IMF, at least for the coming year. For the medium term, it's very important to have the conversation about Russian reserves. It seems that the profits accumulated in Euroclear is something that uh, legally should be able to, is, does not belong to Russia. And there could be a special tax that is imposed on Euroclear. There are other financial sector schemes available and being discussed by our some of our friends and, and former colleagues. But I think there is definitely a way to use those profits for the benefit of Ukraine. And of course, a much bigger conversation needs to happen about accountability and taking over Russia's reserves as a whole. As far as Russian economy is concerned, we have indeed smaller contraction than originally expected and forecasted, including by you, Clay, and me and my colleagues at the IAF. I think it was genuine forecast at the time. However, what happened? First, the financial sector sanctions were not as airtight as we hoped for, and there was not enough spillover between the financial economy, financial sector, and the real economy. So we didn't see the long enough of the negative feedback loop loop between the financial sector and the real economy. Second is the energy measures were not taken until 2023. So we can't say about the impact of the, these measures before they were taken. They were not taken in 2022. And if anything, Russia had an extraordinary large current account surplus in 2022, almost covering for most of the reserves that it lost, uh, which were arrested as part of the measures. And finally, export controls. And uh, we've been writing a lot about that recently. Russia continues to have access to the critical components for its Russia for the military. In fact, this high priority goods, which coalition countries have identified as so-called battlefield items, they fell in dollar terms only by about 10%, 23 compared to 22. So we're clearly not successful in choking off these uh, channels towards Russia. Which brings me to our last question, to your last question about the sanctions that were just announced. It is great that the authorities are persevering and doing more to implement and enforce sanctions. So the measures announced now are going after networks of companies, many of them just shell companies, facilitating Russia's military access to critical components and also uh, evading oil price cap. But that said, what we really need to do is to have corporate accountability. Of course, it has already impacted the financial industry, where financial industry now is also responsible for policing some of these measures, expert controls. We can't have the entire pressure put on the financial industry. It's almost like having a chair and you have a one leg and you're trying to sit on it. No, that's you cannot really do that for a long time. You can do it maybe temporarily. So we do need to have other legs there, which is corporate responsibility and strengthening institutional frameworks in the US and particularly in Europe. Okay, Alina. So let's think about for a second, what is the objective of sanctions? Objective number one is to deter or coerce essentially Russia into not invading or to changing its invasion. Obviously, that objective is a failure. Objective number two, try to hold at least some sort of a coalition together. And I would say that objective has largely been successful to date. Objective number three is to starve the Russian economy to either dramatically, which I think has not worked, and you kind of just talked about that, 
or slowly to basically prevent Russia from growing. And so there would be at least a concern about the Russian economy by the people of Russia, and that could create a change. Is that part working or not? Because my sense, at least, is it's not. And I wonder whether or not the newest sanctions today help achieve that goal, or are we just kind of doing more of the same and that hasn't completely worked to date? Well, you have uh, begun to answer your question with your list of objectives, right? And we have extensive literature now um, uh, from the sort of many years ago, but also in, in more recent years, what are the objectives of sanctions? We've gotten ourselves into a situation where we have a few instruments, but we're trying to hit many objectives with them. And I think that is the key problem. First and foremost, we do need a, a doctrine, especially from the U.S., that is more active in using these measures of economic statecraft. And you might have seen Dalip Singh has recently published uh, an article in, uh, I think, Atlantic uh, by Atlantic Council blog, which I definitely suggest to colleagues to read. We do need a doctrine because otherwise we have no structured framework. And also, we don't have a way to communicate with our allies to say, look, there is some fundamental thinking behind this economic statecraft. It's not random. And the next time, you are not going to be on the receiving end of it because we have a doctrine. You know, maybe in the military defense, we have spent years thinking and developing doctrines and putting them forward and discussing them. We don't have something like that in economic statecraft sphere. So this is first. Otherwise, specifically going to Russia case, what we found ourselves, particularly in the beginning of the war, is throwing too many objectives, dynamic, changing. And if you were to try to, try to put down a list of various quotes from government officials from the first few months of the following Russia's invasion and, and before then, you will end up with, with a list with multiple pages. It's not a very coherent set of objectives. Eventually, we managed to narrow it down to reducing Russia's revenues and curtailing Russia's ability to access critical components. This much narrower set of objectives to me is more comfortable. This is something that we can work with. It's something that is realistic. But even then, it requires much more effort on the implementation and enforcement. You make a good point. Implementation and enforcement is probably the least sexy thing about uh, a sanctions regime, but it actually might be the most important thing. The other one I think you didn't say, but I think you implied is, is patience and Sometimes it's hard to have patience, particularly when rhetoric is that this is going to have a massive impact on Russia and the Russian economy and so forth. And when it doesn't, it's hard to remember about the idea of patience. But obviously, you can disagree with that. But I think that that is right. All right. So, Rush, let me turn back to you. So how do we think about Ukraine's economy going forward? We're not sure what's going to happen with the war. It appears as an outsider and a non-expert like myself that it is a stalemate with sometimes Ukraine seems to be gaining a little ground and sometimes Russia seems to be getting a little. But otherwise, it doesn't seem like it's changed a lot outside of, unfortunately, a lot of people being hurt or dying. How do you see the future of Ukraine's economy under such circumstances, if you have any thoughts on that? Well, um it's very difficult to speak with some confidence uh, about the future of Ukraine's economy beyond uh, this year because the, the level of uncertainty is very high as to which direction the ongoing war could go or how 
Russian attacks uh, might evolve and how much additional damage Ukraine's uh, productive capacity may suffer from in the near and medium term. I think the war will continue to weigh on productivity in Ukraine, business sentiment and investment prospects in Ukraine in the near term. And for the medium term, I think economic activity in Ukraine will be driven mainly by capital spending towards reconstruction for many years to come after the war ends. We make our macro forecasts for 2024 on the assumption that further destruction to production and energy infrastructure will be limited. Based on this assumption, we forecast that real GDP growth will slow to 3% in 2024 from an estimated uh, 5% in 2023. And the primary risk to our forecast is an escalation of the war's destruction on Ukraine's uh, production capacity, as well as uh, further delays in external financing from the US and EU. And regarding the pressure on the economy, I think large twin deficits will be the main source of pressure for the Ukrainian economy in 2024. We forecast Ukraine's fiscal deficit will widen to 24% of GDP this year from 21% last year, and the current account deficit to widen to 7% of GDP this year from 5% in 2023. And to finance these large deficits, Ukraine needs sufficiently large financial aid from its Western partners. And the financial aid flows, as you know, uh, from the US and EU have been on hold. And the, the pressure on the, the economy would unfortunately intensify if funding from uh, Ukraine's Western partners remains on the whole or turns out to be uh, insufficient relative to Ukraine's financing needs. All right. Thanks, Urish. Let me have one out question for you, Alina, which is on it's, it's on the sanctions regime, but it's also to help talk about what Urish was getting at, which is this kind of hole that the Ukrainians are trying to fill. So the sanctions regime, look, there was a large financial sanctions regime, which has had an impact, but as we've all seen, not as impactful as we thought or frankly hoped. The technology control sanctions, which is a little different and gets you into areas that are really a little bit off of finance, but adjacent, has had some impact, but the Russians have done a pretty good job of trying to get around it. It's probably cost them some money and cost them some of their budget, but they've been trying to get around it. And obviously you tried to address this by saying enforcement and implementation is still as key. The last area we've heard about, and you kind of referred to it, well, you did refer to it. There's an idea out there of taking Russian central bank reserves, which have been frozen, which is really very rare in in human history, as far as I, I know. I remember that we did it with Iran, But then to go to a different step, which has never been done before, which is to take those frozen assets and basically redirect them, basically filling the financing gap in Ukraine and helping with reconstruction in the medium term. And I say that it's never happened before, but there's been little tiny exceptions here or there. But do you see this happening? Is this possible? It's it's clearly been a legal slog in the United States and in Europe. There is clearly the precedent problem that people, especially central bankers, don't like seeing central bank assets frozen and redirected without the knowledge of that central bank. How do you see this going forward? 
Well, you're right to bring the issue of the reserve, uh, Russian reserve uh, assets is because other measures are challenging, right? You know, financial sector sanctions, Russia came pretty insulated with the Fortress Russia strategy that we all wrote about together. Uh, export controls will require institutional strengthening and corporate responsibility that takes time. Reserve assets is a natural place to look at. I think there are two issues. One is the principle and another one is the profits. So Euroclear and others who also hold uh, as depository institutions hold um, the, the deposits of Russian Central Bank are not meant to hold those deposits. Normally, as you know, your instruments mature and you will be almost immediately taking out your money. Here, just because of this special situation, because of Russia's war on Ukraine, sanctions, Russian Central Bank cannot take the money out. As a result, that sits as a deposit with Euroclear and accumulates certain interest uh, and accumulates certain return. So taking over that return should be much less legally challenging than taking over the whole asset. And I do hope that in coming months or maybe maybe weeks, but maybe it's ambitious, we will hear more on this. We've seen a few different proposals on the table. You know, some of them talk about collateralization of these returns. But once you do decide that profits do not belong to, to Central Bank of Russia, which I think they don't, then it's much easier to use that. And that is a few billion dollars that can be used. So that is part of the issue. The other bigger issue is taking over all reserves. As you say, there are few precedents. There are also few precedents of, uh, of countries bombing each other and uh, being punished for that. There is a question of having Russia pay for the damage, right? There is also a moral question as the question of reparations. There is a sort of historical geopolitical question related to this. In terms of the legal obstacles, I think the U.S. has moved forward that they can do that legally. So the le apparently legal system in the U.S. allows for that, and the U.S. administration has been very open about it. The issue here is that for European system, it's much less clear cut. And we do need to have legal experts pronounce themselves on the topic and basically have clear risks and sort of be aware of the risks of this decision. So there is a legal concern. In terms of the concern of the alternatives, Russia and other countries finding an alternative, I think if it's done as a G7 measure, and it's most likely will be done as a G7 measure, it is hard to think what would be the alternative for reserves assets. Russia already tried to diversify away. It bought some... Gold, because it produces gold, I think up to 20% of their reserves. The Russian Central Bank at the time grudgingly went into Yuan because that's something as of an alternative. But otherwise, it's very hard to find a viable alternative to the dollar, to the euro and other G7 currencies. Well, uh, Alina and Urush, thank you so much for coming back on and giving us an update on Ukraine and Russia. Your expertise on this is very important to hear. It wasn't very uplifting, admittedly, but it was a good time for us to do a catch up as we hit this two year anniversary. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Clay. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Urush and Alina, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. My three main takeaways are, first, is the Ukrainian economy has suffered dramatically over the last two years. And as Urush has said, that the, the financing hole that they are looking at is significant. And if U.S. financial assistance or European financial assistance doesn't come through, it becomes a hole that could grow and become much bigger. Second, 
Russia's economy has done much better over the last two years than I think was originally anticipated back in 2022. They have maneuvered well to get around the sanctions regime that was put in place. And the economy has suffered, but not nearly as dramatically as originally anticipated. And that leads to number three, which is the sanctions regime itself has been effective to a certain extent. But that certain extent might be the problem in that it is been not as dramatic and not as significant as one would have been led to believe if we believed all the policymakers. And that could be an important problem going forward. And that, I guess, leads me to the two things I'm looking forward to. The first is, can the U.S. Congress move to provide financial assistance for Ukraine? For those that don't follow this, the Senate has passed a bill that would allow Ukraine to get both military assistance as well as financial assistance, but it is stuck in the House of Representatives. And it's stuck for a variety of different reasons. Some of them have to do with Ukraine and some of them don't. We'll have to see whether they become unstuck in March. Next is the idea that Alina was talking about at the end, which is, can the frozen reserves of the Central Bank of Russia be utilized or is there a, a mechanism that can be found to make them available for Ukraine, either from, from financing purposes or for longer term reconstruction purposes. And now my one sports fact. I'm turning back to the sport of tennis, but I'm, instead of talking about a specific tournament, I want to talk about a stroke. And that is for the first time since basically the men's professional tour came together in 1973, so a little more than 50 years ago, there is not going to be one men's player that is ranked in the top 10 that uses a one-handed backhand. And that's because the great Greek tennis player, Stefanos Tsitsipas, who does have a one-handed backhand, has fallen out of the top 10. The one-handed backhand has always been a part of tennis. And over the last few years, the most successful person we can think of is the beauty of watching Roger Federer and his one-handed backhand as one of the most successful tennis players, if not the most successful tennis player in history. But the one-handed backhand has become less and less prominent in men's tennis. It's even less prominent in women's tennis where there is not one person in the top 50 of women's players that has a one-handed backhand. I think there's a few reasons for this. The first is probably just technology. Now, in some respects, technology where the serve and the tennis racket became just greater and greater power, it made it so it became harder and harder to serve and volley. And so you don't see anybody basically playing a serve and volley game anymore. And a one-handed backhand is actually a helpful thing for a serve and volley. But maybe more relevantly and more recently is the serve comes in so hard, being able to have an effective return with one hand is very difficult. And so most players develop a two-handed backhand in order to return the serve. The second is really a training methodology. It's an easier stroke than a one-handed backhand. It became the, the tool for most teachers. And so most teachers train very, very, very good tennis players on how to have a two-handed backhand. And so as they move their way up the ranks, 
it just becomes less and less of them that are moving all the way up to the top 10 who have a one-handed backhand. So then I started thinking, like, are there other sports where this has happened? And I'm sure there's a lot of sports where technology has made changes happen. I did think about the idea of basketball. It's a sport I love very much. Basketball, it's not because of technology. It was because of a rule change. So when I was growing up, there was no three-point line. And so in basketball, what you had was the basketball would be put into the low post and the basically the biggest guys on the court were usually your top scorers or your best players. You always had a few people that could really shoot from the outside, but now it's changed. With a three-point line, you have a lot of players that can shoot from the outside, and that's because they learned how to shoot from three-point line because you got more points than if you put it in low, and that has changed the game fairly significantly over time although it's much less noticeable than a one-handed versus a two-handed backhand. It's a matter of strategy at that point. Anyway, I'm sure others have different ideas about how technology or a rule change or training methodologies could actually make it so the sport changes dramatically. If you have any ideas, we'd love to hear them. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. I want to thank again my former colleague and my current colleague, Alina Rybakova and Urash Olko, for their expertise today. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.